What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist, revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. David, I am very excited about the new archival Rolling Stones live record. It is called El Mocambo, 1977. Now, the Rolling Stones have a checkered past when it comes to live records. The first one they did that was released, it was an EP in the UK, but it was an LP here, was Got Live If You Wanted. Do you recall that record when it came out? I had that record. Even though it was recorded poorly, it was still a live Rolling Stones record. And basically, when you don't get a chance to see them live, it's the next best thing. Although, when you listen to it now, it really wasn't the next best thing. Yeah, it's a pretty horrible recording. And according to legend, I think some of the tracks were actually recorded in the studio, and they overdubbed a cheering and screaming which was pretty much the fashion back then. Girls would scream their heads off, lose their cookies, as it were. The second live album the Stones did was Get Your Yaya's Out. That was, the, of course, the 1969 tour. And that is considered by many to be the greatest live album ever recorded. Your thoughts on that? Greatest live album ever recorded. Did they not listen to Almond Brothers at the Fillmore? Did they not listen to Humble Pie at the Fillmore? I'm sure Grateful Dead Freaks would probably have a little bit of something to say about that as well. The best of, the greatest... Nah, you can't do that. You you just cannot do that. The next uh, couple of records they did, Love You Live in 1977, by that time, the Rolling Stones were celebrities. And of course, uh, the Elmo Combo Club comes from that live record, and they've actually added more tracks to make it the whole new record. We're talking about Elmo Combo Live 77. And that was the Black and Blue Tour of 1976, where Keith got busted. Of course, in 1977, 76, the Rolling Stones were celebrities. Do you think the Stones lost their edge in the 70s? I don't know if they lost their edge. I think that they certainly uh, were searching for something, maybe to recapture some of that early bravado. If you think about it, there were some great Stones albums in the 70s. Absolutely. And to continue on the live track, they put out Still Life, which came out in 1982, which was a document of their 81 tour, and that was still boring. It really was. The Rolling Stones yes. were pretty much entertainers by then. Ditto Flashpoint, which was the reunion tour, which is the first time you saw the Stones in 1989. Exactly, 89 uh, at Shea Stadium. Right. As a matter of fact, Arno, who was one of the horns uh, for that tour, actually got seats for me and my girlfriend at the time, who was one of the singers in Buster Poindexter's band. That was hot, hot, hot. Buster Poindexter and his Banshees of Blue. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. The next record they did in 95 live record, I think is probably the best Stones live record. It's called Stripped. And it was during the Unplugged, when Unplugged was fashionable with MTV. They did an Unplugged record. And uh, that one has actually been expanded into a couple of deluxe editions. Then, of course, they would just churn out live albums, as it were. No Security came out in 1998, which documented the 97 tour. It was Live Licks, which documented the 2000-2003 tour. It was Shine a Light, which was the soundtrack from the Scorsese film, which is a must shine a light. And then there was On Air, which is uh, sort of like the BBC, all uh, tracks called from their BBC appearances, which came out on Polydor, which is not a official Rolling Stones release. And for you live Stones fans, there's a ton of digital releases. 
uh, that are streaming only live in Havana, live in New York City, uh, live documentations of tracks from Steel Wheels, Bigger Bang, Bridges to Babylon, and Booty Lounge. But I got to tell you, David, Elma Combo 77, not only is it, in my opinion, the best Rolling Stones live album, but it is the best live documentation of Bill Wyman, our bass hero, the former William. Absolutely. Bruce. Bill Wyman, where is he on that record? Oh, well, you know, the Rolling Stones forgot to put his <laughs> picture on the cover. This really irked me because this is an archival release. And actually, it's not the cover, it's the gatefold and the booklet that comes with it. They only have Ronnie, they have Charlie, who passed, had passed when this came out, Mick and Keith, and there's no Bill Wyman, and that's a real disgrace. There's also none of the other side people, Ian Stewart, Billy Preston, or percussionist Ollie Brown. So a real diss to Bill Wyman. Well, you think about it, those guys must have been very, very hurt by him leaving, and this was their way of a comeuppance, maybe. But here's the other thing. You were mentioning all these live Stones records. Obviously, because technology got better, and obviously because the Stones as musicians got better. Right. It sounded better, right? Exactly. But there is a live bravado that goes all the way back to the Hollywood Palace, so to speak. They were just rocking that. You turned me on to this live album, that Mo Combo. My God, I would listen to that regularly. And I don't listen to anything regularly anymore. It's kind of like, at this point, I could play you through my head virtually every record that came out, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. But this is a great record. And you're right. Bill Wyman is kicking butt. It's one of his great, uh, really one of his best live performances. And what's nice, David, and we'll play some of these tracks, we get to hear Bill play bass live on tracks he did not play in the studio. We get to hear him play It's Only Rock and Roll, which was Willie Weeks recording right. with Ronnie Wood. The Stones co-opted that song. That was part of the bargain for Ronnie, I guess, to get into the Stones. We hear Bill play Rip This Joint and All Down the Line, which was upright player Bill Plummer from Exile on Main Street. He recorded those tracks in L.A. And Bill just smokes on All Down the Line, David. And then we hear Bill play Crazy Mama, which was Keith in the uh, bass chair for Black and Blue. That was a new song back then. And we hear Bill play Tumbling Dice, which was Mick Taylor doing the bass track from Exile on Main Street. Now, here's a question for you, because I've always wondered. I, I don't think I've read anything about it. Was it because he wasn't available, or what was it? Because it couldn't have been his ability. I think what happened, well, the, the story with Exile on Main Street was that they were keeping, you know, very, very odd hours, let's say. And Bill and Charlie, I don't think they lived near the chateau where, where Keith was staying and the recording equipment was. So yeah, I think it took them a couple hours to actually get there. So it's all logistic, basically, right? It's all logistic. That was its only rock and roll, preceded by All Down the Line from Rolling Stones Live at El Macombo, 1977. This is Notes from an Artist on Cygnus Radio. One of the nice things we hear on this record, of course, Stones always go back to their influence. We hear Route 66. They also do Chuck Berry's Around and Around. We were just listening to two versions of two songs. The first was the Rolling Stones Live at El Macombo doing Route 66, followed by the original, the 1946 version of Route 66 by Nat King Cole. Then we heard the Stones doing the Chuck Berry tune, Around and Around, 
also at Oma Combo, followed by Chuck Berry doing the original in 1958. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Stones never forgot their sense of history or where they came from. What was the name of that record that just came out a couple years back, which is a literal um, panoply of all the great songs that they grew up loving, from Jimmy Rogers to Willie Dixon to uh, Bo Diddley, etc., so for all of you fans out there and fans of the blues, this is almost the greatest hits record of some of the greatest blues artists of all time. And the Stones, true to form, put together this record as a loving tribute to what they grew up with. Fabulous stuff. Don't you agree? Absolutely. It's, it's really so. Let's roll with the Stones. You've been listening to Little Rain by Jimmy Reed. Then a Willie Dixon tune sung by Howlin' Wolf. Little Red Rooster, followed up by Bo Diddley's You Can't Judge a Book by Its Cover. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. David, you played the Macombo Club. Tell me about that. Well, first of all, what was really bizarre is I played it about three weeks after the Stones did. I was in a group on RCA called Aztec Two-Step, and I love Toronto. As a matter of fact, I think some of the best Chinese food in the world is the Toronto Chinatown. (laughs) Call me crazy. It's true. This is a really great club. You had to walk up a flight of stairs, and it was a nice-sized room. And what was interesting is, besides the sound being really great at the club, the club was catering to a lot of different styles. There was a lot of punk rock from England that would come over and tour this club. I think the Pistols did it. I think the Damned played there. The original punk, the Stones played there. So it was a great time. I, I loved playing there. It, it, it's, it's a really nice city. It really what, is. what Aztec record were you guys promoting? What were you on the road? Uh, adjoining Suites, which was the third. No, the fourth. The fourth um, Aztec two-step record. All right. And I actually got a tune on the record, which was really kind of cool. I think I'm still owed about 92 cents. <laughs> well, I bought a copy, so it should be up to 96 cents. All right, let's play some Aztec Two-Step. That was Aztec Two-Step from the album Adjoining Suites, doing a tune called Born Again. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Now, David, you remember when we interviewed Salmeda and uh, Mitchell Cohen about the 100, 100 flop albums? And for you fans who haven't heard it, it's on our podcast. And we had a little bit of a debate over what was the greatest year in rock and roll. And you, Mitch, and Sal said 1966. Of course, I being a few years younger than you, just a few, a handful of years younger, I am most beholden to the year 1971, which was a great year for singer-songwriter. I think uh, one of the back and forth we had with Mitch was he couldn't understand how 1971 could be the best year in music when you didn't have a Beatles record or a Bob Dylan record, to which I replied, well, you know, there is life after the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Yes, indeed. But uh, I've been reviewing another year that has me absolutely fascinated. We've seen uh, photo essays on it. It is the year 1972. Let's go back to 1972, David. Women wore the maxi dress. Grease debuted on Broadway. Last Tango in Paris debuted. Did you see that in the theaters, David? Uh, do you have any butter? <laughs> right. It's, it, changed, it forever changed the way the world looks at stick butter. You're absolutely That's right. right. And then, as a matter of fact, I think Fabio, who did, I can't, what was the name of that? Uh, I can't believe it's not butter. I can't believe it's not butter. Anyway, uh, we'll have to play that uh, ad. She wanted to remember the love they shared for butter, but cholesterol took away their passion until... 
can't believe it's not butter. I can't believe it's not butter. The taste you love without the cholesterol. What a work of art. That was the theme to Last Tango in Paris, created and orchestrated and composed by Gato Barbieri. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. I was too young to see that movie, Dad. But I, I see the pictures in my dad's Playboy. Book. Well, I preferred margarine back then. <laughs> I can't believe it's not butter. Another movie which debuted in a, a movie series was The Godfather. That was the theme to The Godfather, composed by Nina Rota. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Let's talk more about 1972. Richard Milhouse Nixon won by a landslide, and he also went to China. David. The Dallas Cowboys defeated the Miami Dolphins in Super Bowl VI. Shirley Chisholm became the first African-American congresswoman in New York City. George Wallace was shot. We had what was known as the Watergate scandal, which seems pretty tame nowadays. Jane Fonda became Hanoi Jane Fonda. That was some photo op for her. Remember that? That's right. George Carlin got arrested for saying seven dirty words, which I don't think we could say on radio either or TV. One of them in particular, I wouldn't. The other six would be fine. Bobby Fischer beat Boris Spassky. Remember chess? That was the hot new sport. Yes. The swing in Oakland A's defeated the Big Red Machine in the World Series. Did that have anything to do with steroids, Mark McGuire? No. This was way before the steroid era. <laughs> okay. Last Man on the Moon, Apollo 17, and it was also a great year for music, and we have what was known, David, as AM, FM radio, okay, Correct. and let's talk about some of the records that came out. I'm just going to go off the top of my head. David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That was David Bowie's Suffragette City from The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Take us back to that 1972, David. What was the impression among the music establishment? of David Bowie, at least in your realm where you played with studio players? Well, I think the first thing for me was I had to learn how to put on makeup. That, I think, was the first thing. But the interesting thing about David Bowie's record is how much it's tied to 60s rock mm-hmm. and roll. Right. Uh, if you think about it, Suffragette City, it all came out of almost a T-Rex kind of vibe. I think it was Mark Boland who really was a major influence on that particular recording. What do you think? I think they both influenced each other, and I think also Tony Visconti was both their producers, but I believe Ziggy Stardust was actually based on a 60s rock star who flamed out. It wasn't Gene Vincent, but it was someone else. Okay, hey, another interesting thing. Do you know who did the cover of the T-Rex album Slider? Well, it's alleged to be Ringo Starr. And Ringo Starr took credit for it, but it really wasn't. It was Tony Visconti. Exactly. Exactly. Good one. So there we go. You see, we can't trip each other up. David, other great records that came out in 1972, The Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, which we discussed previously. Stevie Wonder put out two tremendous records, one of them, of course, being Talking Book. Is there a bad song on Talking Book? That was Stevie Wonder doing I Believe When I Fall in Love. And I don't know if you remember, but the following year on Frampton's Camel, Peter Frampton did a cover of that, which was just great. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. And keeping in the soul realm here, let's talk about Al Green, Let's Stay Together. That was a huge record. what a great record. And I was fortunate, a friend of mine took me to the Apollo to see that band. And good God. Wow, you got to see Leroy Hodges live, bass player? Exactly. That was How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, Al Green. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Another big record, Curtis Mayfield, Superfly. That that whole era of Superfly, Shaft, uh, Foxy Brown, Across 110th Street. 
Bobby Womack. Another great. great record from 72, yes. Yes, indeed. That was Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack, preceded by Superfly, Curtis Mayfield. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Reeling in the ears, Steely Dan. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. All right, David, other great records from 1972, the Allman Brothers, Eat a Peach, which was sort of a eulogy to the late, great Dwayne Allman. Nick Drake did Pink Moon. Paul Simon made his debut, the Paul Simon record, with Mother and Child Reunion, which had a reggae groove to it by Jackie Jackson of Toots and the Maytal. Let's go back a bit um, to Eat a Pete. Okay. Kind of disappointing after Live at the Fillmore, wouldn't you say? I guess it was. I think it would have made a great studio record, a single platter. But I guess because Dwayne had passed, they decided to put that jam together. Now, you remember back in the day, that was on sides one and three were one platter and sides two and four were another player. Because Do you want to tell our listeners why? That's because we used to listen to music on what was known as a record player, and those discs would pile up, and they would automatically drop, and of course, screw up the disc that was under it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, Allman Brothers, Eat a Peach, I think that should have been a, a single record, but I guess with Dwayne passing, they wanted to do something special, and no one knew if the band was going to continue it. Right, right. More great records from 1972. Elton John, Honky Chateau, huge record for him. Mata Hoople's seminal All the Young Dudes. Deep Purple, Unleashed Machine Head, which has the riff that drives everyone who works in a music store crazy, Smoke on the Water. How many people have we tortured? By the way, just as an aside, I was in a band. It was like a crazy knitting factory avant kind of band. We did a version of Smoke on the Water, which started out like a, a surf tune and ended up becoming klezmer. It was hilarious. <laughs> Everyone loved it. I wish I had a copy to play. Oh, I guarantee you, there is no way we're going to play Smoke on the Water. No, of course not. Uh, Jackson Brown released his first record uh, with uh, Jesse Ed Davis doing uh, the great guitar solo on Dr. My Eyes. Todd Rudgren, Something Anything with the Sales Brothers, Hunt and Tony Sales on bass, and a couple of other We went to prep school together. All right, there you go. Black Mariah, Todd Rundgren. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. The Grateful Dead did their triple live set, Europe 72. Okay, we mentioned T-Rex's slider. Lou Reed came out with Transformer with Walk on the Wild Side, the quintessential New York song, where Herbie Flowers got double scale for playing electric and acoustic. That's exactly right. And, and of course, that was recorded in Trident Studios in London. That was Lou Reed, Walk on the Wild Side, from the Transformer record. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Edgar Winter, they only come out at night with Frankenstein. That was probably the heaviest rock instrumental to ever become a hit song. I would, I would agree. I mean, how many rock instrumentals became hits after that? That was Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Van Morrison, St. Dominic's Preview. The Straubs did Grave New World. Joe Walsh uh, left the James Gang and did the Barnstorm record. Santana broke with their tradition and did Caravan Seri, which we spoke to Benny Reifold about. And Clive Davis called that record career suicide because, dare I say it, David, it was a... It was, it was. But there was another great jazz fusion record that came out in 72, correct? There were plenty of them. Go ahead. On the Corner. On the Corner. Miles on the Corner, of course. And can we have a moment, a little tribute? One of the greatest bass players of all time passed away this week. His name was Michael Henderson. Okay, Miles on the corner. of Now, that wasn't his first recording with Miles. And Michael Henderson was a double threat. He was not only a bass player, but he was a rhythm and blues singer-songwriter in his own right. Something amazing about Michael Henderson was 
he really, this, this was the record that really ticked off the jazz critics. Stanley Crouch obviously had a fit when Miles on the Corner came out. And some people in Miles Davis' band weren't thrilled that Miles had coach Stevie Wonder's bass player, and one of them being Keith Jarrett. Uh, he wanted a more accomplished bass player. Remember, Michael Henderson was the first bass player in a Miles band that did not come from the upright history, did not have a history of playing upright, whereas Dave Holland, who was... Well, he stood. He's, he, well, st standing upright is another story. Dave Holland, of course, Ron Carter, who played some electric, they were primarily upright players. But Michael Henderson was first and foremost a electric player. And it was those repetitive motifs, those grooves that got deeper and deeper and deeper every time he played. Well, you have to imagine that Betty Davis made a point of turning Miles onto Sly Hendrick, and he wanted to get some of that action in. And the other thing about Michael Henderson that daunted me until I figured it out, like maybe four months later, he would tune his E to a D. That's right. how he got even deeper. Really a major influence on me. I think as important as all of the previous bass players in Miles, Harvey Brooks, when Dave Holland was playing electric bass. Right. Oh my God, Michael Henderson is like just an amazing, amazing craftsman. And for those of you who don't know, he was the bass player on Norman Connors' You Are My Starship. That was Miles Davis doing Black Satin from the album On the Corner. This is Notes from an Artist on Cygnus Radio. And I would imagine he must have been a great influence because he helped legitimize the electric bass. He was primarily an electric bass player on the bandstand with Mott. And that must have exactly. been a, a tremendous impact. And all the great records he played on, uh, Live Evil, or some of the archival stuff, Pangea, Agartha, Big Fun. So there's lots of Michael Henderson with Miles out there. Exactly. Another funny story is, just like I followed the Stones with Aztec Two-Step, I ended up playing with Aztec The Cellar Door in okay. Washington, D.C. Wow. after Miles did that. Well, it's a six-CD set now. Right. But what was so interesting is that's a small place. I was wondering how the heck they got that whole band on stage because the stage is not set up for, uh, what was it, like a nine or a ten-piece band. That's really remarkable thinking, and you, you really realize how much jazz fell off the map days and it was not they weren't drawing big audiences and for miles davis to play such a tiny club just after he released bitches brew i mean that's that's inconceivable in the 20s well, remember he also was doing places like the fillmore so sure it's possible he was doing that as a warm-up to a bigger thing because when i was going to berkeley college of music i saw him at paul's mall which was equally as small a place as as the cellar door and okay. he had a big band there as well let's spin some miles at the cellar door probably 1971 a little more superior to 1972 but we'll definitely get to 1973 because that was a great year yeah so folks stay tuned we'll probably be doing more of these freeform shows a lot of great music and a lot of music you need to discover so hopefully we'll speak to you soon and this is david gross and tom Samioli. keep your hand on the what no keep your feet on the ground and reach for the stars, Dave? Is that what it is? That's it. All right. That's it. <laughs> I'm getting a little nervous when you can keep your hand. I'm going, oh, jeez. Keep <laughs> your hand in your pants now. and reach for the stars. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> All right, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye right. now. Say goodnight, Dick. Goodnight, Dick. <laughs>